0: Very sweet to be back in Santa Cruz. It's like the same place that it always was. just having a look at you all beautiful faces I've heard that uh, that the coronavirus is spreading a little bit more and Santa Cruz, these days. The town's on the alert. More people are getting sick. I've heard. Santa Cruz and all around the country, of course. This sickness that's been with us now for so many months maybe some of us are, are more aware of the potential of sickness than we ever have been seems like this was a, uh, an issue for the Buddha also As you may have heard, the Buddha had a happy childhood growing up with his um, wealthy parents. And um, I think he was, as far as we know, a pretty healthy child. Uh, Maybe he didn't even see much sickness at all. That's sometimes how the story is told. If If anybody got sick in the... Palace grounds. They were whisked away, so so young Siddhartha uh, didn't see them, and he wouldn't. Therefore, he wouldn't get worried. His parents really protected him from seeing old age, sickness, and death for like some years, till he was in his twenties. I think the story goes. He really didn't know about these things, and therefore he wasn't so worried. Uh, then, as the story goes, he um, he uh, went excursion from the palace. He, by mistake, the his father and the townspeople um, weren't so careful at hiding people who were um, undergoing the turmoil of old age, sickness, and death. So young Siddhartha did see this. And uh, as I understand the story, when this boy first encountered this possibility of sickness, as well as old age and death, he started to, Worry. I don't know if they use that word in the sutras, but that's how I kind of understand it. That's how I imagine his, his response. He wasn't so worried before, but when he saw this possibility that would happen, that happened to others and would happen to him, he started to worry. So um, we can probably relate to that. As sickness spreads around the country, around uh, our very own villages, uh, we may start to worry. What a blessing to have this practice. to have this dharma that may um, help us with such a thing. Now, sometimes when we worry, if we're worried a lot, our friends or people around us might say, just try to relax. And, uh, of course, in Zen practice, we celebrate relaxation. So it's not bad. Um and maybe young Siddhartha tried to relax a bit um after realizing this predicament of impending sickness and death. Uh but um I would propose that um it's not that helpful, <laughs> actually. I mean it's definitely not the whole story, as we know, because if we're really worried about something, we can try to relax and we relax a little bit. But it doesn't really completely relieve our worries. We need we need something more. And that was the Buddha's story, too. If it was enough to just relax, he was already, I think, pretty, pretty relaxed kid in the palace there. Um, that would uh if that was enough, he maybe would have stayed there, but he was worried enough about sickness, old age and death, that he um he had to get to the bottom of it. He um, he had to leave. Ironically, leave his more secure and comfortable, um sickness free, um, sheltering in place. In that parent's palace, and go out into the disease-ridden countryside, and um, get to the bottom of this matter of his own sickness and others. He was pretty concerned about his own sickness, I, I think, and and didn't feel so good about that. Um, and we might worry about our own sickness and think, well, that's maybe, maybe, uh, I don't need to worry so much about my own sickness, but I'm worrying about other people's sickness. And uh, I would propose that worrying about other people's sickness is really not so helpful either. Sometimes we maybe feel like uh, the responsible thing is to worry about other people's sickness, but... um uh, I don't think it's really helpful for them or us. Now, taking care of other people's sickness and responding to them, that can be very beneficial. But worrying about our own or other sickness, I don't think ever really helps. And relaxation maybe doesn't help that much. So um, the Buddha went out to find the kind of answers to how to deal with this impending sickness, aging and death. And he found answers and he passed them on to us. So, uh, these answers get sometimes get transformed into Zen stories. So today, uh, we can look at a Zen story about, about sickness. This is uh, case 83 in the Book of Serenity called Dao Wu Tends the Sick. First, there's an introduction to warm us up to this story in uh, Zen style introduction, goes like this. The whole body being sickness, vimalakirti, is hard to cure. The grass is medicine and Manjushri uses it well. Isn't it wonderful to meet a person who's gone beyond and realized ease and joy. That's the introduction to this story. And uh, as is often the case, these Zen poetic verses uh, refer to lots of other stories. The whole body being sickness, the malakirti is hard to cure. Vimalakirti is a devoted lay disciple of the Buddha in ancient India, the hero of the Vimalakirti Sutra. And, um, basically this whole sutra, layman Vimalakirti is sick. And, uh, It's said that by skillful means he let his body appear sick so that many people would come and visit him. And then he could share the Dharma with them. So if we ever happen to be sick and people come to visit us and uh, we might feel a little guilty that they're going to all the trouble to visit us, we can remember this story and think, Actually, Vimila Kirti thought it was a good thing for him to appear sick so that people would come visit him. He didn't think, I don't want to burden those people. He's like, I want those people to come visit me. And then we can we can talk about the Dharma. They might not come if I'm healthy. So um, that's part of the story here. And then when they came, he told them not to rely on this impermanent body, but to rely on the dharma body. Because the impermanent body is um, kind of like a dream, like said. It's not as real as we think it is. And when, when his guests who came to visit him um, heard this kind of thing, they um were inspired to practice. So uh, various people came to visit Vimalakirti, and one of them was Manjushri Bodhisattva. And uh, when Manjushri finally got there to Vimalakirti's sickbed, he asked, what is the cause of your sickness, and how can it be cured? And Vimalakirti said, this Sickness is born of ignorance and grasping. Because all sentient beings are sick, I am sick. If all sentient beings are relieved of sickness, then so will I be relieved of sickness. Bodhisattvas, for the sake of all living beings, enter the realm of birth and death, and thereby... They have to experience sickness. Bodhisattva sickness arises from great compassion. The a wonderful teaching, I think, of Melakirti. That uh, again, if we happen to be sick, we might remember these words that um we are here in this realm of birth and death, uh, in order to benefit beings. And the price that we have to pay for that is we get sick sometimes. Manjishi uh, went on to ask Vimalakuti, what's the form of your sickness? Vimalakuti said, this sickness has no form. It can't be seen. Manjushi asked, is this... A sickness of your body or your mind? And Vimalakriti said, it's not in the body, since the body is not really a physical thing. And it's not in the mind, since the mind is just like a dream. Manjushi asked, well, how should a bodhisattva comfort and teach another sick bodhisattva? This is very practical advice for bodhisattvas. If they go to visit a sick bodhisattva, um, how should they comfort and teach them? It's interesting that he asks here, um, not how should bodhisattvas um, comfort any sick people, but if they go to comfort sick bodhisattvas, if bodhisattvas go to visit sick bodhisattvas might be a little different than how they go to visit anybody. Might be. How should they comfort and teach them? The male says, tell that sick bodhisattva about, remind them, they already know really, but remind them about the impermanence of the body, but not to despise the body. And tell the bodhisattva to use her own sickness as a way to empathize with other sick people. I think that's a great teaching too. If we happen to ever be sick, um, it's a chance to empathize with other sick people. When we're healthy, we often forget that. We, we know people are sick, but we, we, we forget how difficult it is. But when we're sick, we can remember, we can remember, oh, actually there's lots of people sick and there's probably people actually much more sick than me. And, uh, I now I'm remembering my heart's opening, um, empathizing That's it. how bodhisattvas might practice with sickness in a very practical way. And finally, uh, the Malikriti says, if you go to visit a sick bodhisattva, um, you can, suggest to that Bodhisattva that they not give in to worry. Worry is really like, um, uh, worry seems to be like fear of future suffering for this self. Or maybe for other selves. It's a kind of um uh, interesting sort of um, form of suffering worry is because it's oh it's all based on the future. It's always about the future, right? And sometimes we it's not even um, accurate. <laughs> In fact, usually our imagination of the future is not completely accurate. Sometimes it's a little bit, but some of our worry is really ungrounded, unjustified. But again, uh, if we have this worry about sickness, um, our own or others, uh, in addition to relaxing around that, uh, what else can we do? The next line is this introduction. The grass is medicine and Manjushi uses it well. This is another me, Maybe from the flower ornament sutra, where Manjushi asks Sudana, the pilgrim Sudana, to gather some herbs, medicinal herbs. And uh, Sudhana starts looking around for some medicinal herbs and comes back to Mandushi and says, well, there's a lot. There's a lot out there. And uh, Mandushi says, well, if there's something that's not medicine, Bring it to me. And Sudhana said, "Um, actually, I can't find anything that isn't medicine. And then Manjushi said, "Um, okay, then um, bring me something that is medicine. So Manjushi, uh, Sudhana picked up a blade of grass. And gave it to Manjushri. Yeah. The reference for this line in the introduction of the story The grass is medicine, and Manjushri uses it well. Isn't it wonderful to meet? Person who's gone beyond and realized ease and joy. It's the introduction to case 83. The case the story here is about the old days in China in the Tang dynasty. Two Dharma brothers named Gui Shan and Da Wu. They're both disciples of by John, one of the great Zen ancestors. These are all great old Zen ancestors. Uh, one time, uh, Guishan was practicing with his teacher, John, and... Uh, Baijan said, his, his, said to Guishan, who was his jisha, his attendant, said um, they were sitting by the by the wood stove on a winter evening, and Baijan said, poke the fire and see if there's any fire left. And um, Guishan took the poker and uh, mixed up the ashes a little bit, looking for some fire, and said, nope, there's no fire left. By John. And said, "Give me the poker." And took the poker and poked way deep into the into the ashes and um, stirred up a little glowing ember. So what about this? And upon. Hearing and seeing this, Guishan realized awakening. So now this story is about um, Guishan with his Dharma brother, Dao Wu, who later went on to practice with Yao Shan, and became a successor of our lineage, ancestor Yao Shan. So this time they're practicing together and um, Guishan asked Dao Wu, where are you coming from? They like to ask this kind of question in the old days. It's definitely a conversation starter in the Zen halls. Where are you coming from? Wu said, um, "Coming from tending the sick." Now we don't know if that meant that he was actually like Manjushri went to visit the If Dawu was um, visiting a sick member of the sangha, or it could mean that um, he was just doing zazen. Because I think zazen is a valid way of tending the sick. Don't you? Maybe the most direct way of tending the sick is to just be very um, intimate and close with the sick um, and just be with the sick. We don't know, but Guishan asked, where are you coming from? And Dao said, I'm coming from tending the sick. Guishan asked, how many people are sick? Dao said, there are the sick and the not sick. In Buddha Dharma, we often speak of The two truths. The conventional truth of appearances and the ultimate truth of nothing whatsoever actually existing. I'm coming from tending the sick. Great, I said. How many people are sick? Tao Wu said. There are the sick and the not sick. Guishan asked, isn't it you who are not sick? Dao Wu said, being sick and not sick have nothing to do with him. Speak quickly, speak quickly. Guishan said, even if I could say something, it would not reach it. That's the story. Guishan asked Dao, where are you coming from? Dao said, I'm coming from tending the sick. Guishan asked, how many people are sick? Dao said, there are the sick and the not sick. Guishan asked, isn't it you who are not sick? Dao said, being sick and not sick have nothing to do with him or have nothing to do with it. Speak quickly, squeak, speak quickly, brother. Gwen said, even if I could say something it would wouldn't reach it. So we're we're all pretty familiar with um, the sick, the sick ones, maybe us, maybe um, others, maybe as Virmala Kuti said, all beings are actually sick. That's why I'm sick. So um, that's uh, the sickness is kind of like in our face. We, um, we don't have to go looking for it. Um, but what about the not sick? I think especially this applies to, um, to our own practice. You know, if we see somebody that seems, appears to be sick, uh, we don't want to tell them that they're not sick. That's totally inappropriate for a bodhisattva. You now, if a bodhisattva goes to talk to a sick bodhisattva, as familiar Kirti was suggesting, then they, um, then they might be able to discuss the nature of sickness. But mainly I think it's um, we, we start looking at our own sickness. And um, even if we don't feel so sick, uh, if we're worried at all about ever being sick, worry about anything for that matter, then uh, we have something to look at. We have something to investigate so um isn't that absurd to say that um that there is the not sick, even um in this this very body that's falling apart as we sit here? Some of us are um just starting to fall apart and some are like really falling apart and but we're all basically falling apart and um we're gonna fall completely apart. So I think it's just the Buddha's the Buddha was really worried about this and we might be too. So um, we can take a look at this body. Anything really we can take a look at but um in this case you know a body that's that's um somewhat sick or very sick and uh we can investigate it one of the um one of the kind of classic ways to start um examining investigating the nature of things like a body is to um is using a little bit of kind of like logic using a little bit of like reasoning and um I think sometimes Zen people don't really like to use reasoning so much because they feel like it's it's too conceptual or something. But in fact, all day long we're using, we're unconsciously using logic. We're using reasoning. If we just go to um, pick up a cup of water, there's a I would say it's it's, it seems spontaneous, but we're using. Not I would propose we're we're using our faculties of like, I know that looks about two feet away and like. Gravity's pulling it down, so I have to um, wrap my fingers around the handle and lift. It's spontaneous, but it's it's based on some assumptions about how things work. So that's, I think, one way to look at what, what um, logical reasoning is, is. Just looking at our basic assumptions. But it sounds a little funny sometimes when we talk about it. So one of these logical reasonings, ways to investigate with Reasoning is to um, say, okay, if there's something like a body, it and this and if this body actually exists in the way that it seems to, it must be um, one of two things. It must be either one singular entity called a body, or it must be a like multiplicity of a bunch of things. We start with with that um, premise and we come to see there's no third alternatives here. If something exists, either it's one singular thing or it's a multiplicity of a bunch of parts. And those those two categories are... um, not mixable. They're, things are either one thing or they're a bunch of things. Like you can't have it be like, well, it's sort of one thing that's sort of a bunch of things. This is how um, reasoning works. We we um we set up a a a setup like this. We set up a situation, we we look at at a thing in terms of these two possibilities. If something like a body were to exist, it must be either one thing or a multiplicity of things. It's one or the other. There's no third possibilities. Then we can start investigating. If it really exists, it must be one of these two things. So let's see if it's one of the two things. And if it's neither of the two things, that's the kind of proof that it doesn't exist. So I start with, is this body sick, partially sick or extremely sick body? Is it one entity? Is it one thing? And I think it's pretty easy for us to see. We call it, we call it a body, one thing, but it's not really like one inseparable entity. It's made up of a bunch of stuff like eyes and ears and nose and hands and feet and um, hearts and lungs and livers and stuff it's not like an inseparable entity it's actually a bunch of parts right we often feel as if it's one thing but but when we take a closer look it seems uh, actually nothing actually is really one inseparable entity if we start taking a look at things nothing's really like that so we just eliminated half the possibility of what an existent thing could be. Like an existent body can't be a single unitary on indivisible entity. It's not like that. So then we say, okay, it's not, the body's not that kind of thing. How about the second possibility? The body is a, a multiplicity of a bunch of a bunch of things a bunch of parts but then we see that these parts have the same issue parts are, are we talking about like singular indivisible parts because if we are we know that that doesn't have, there isn't any such thing as an individual part We've already, we've already discerned that, and if you haven't, if it doesn't make sense, maybe spend some time seeing if anything is an indivisible, singular entity. And if it's parts, if it's just a bunch of parts, each of the parts that seems at first like an indivisible entity is also not an indivisible entity. Because nothing is, so we might say, no, there's not really, um, there's not really an existing body, but there is this collection of um, eyes and ears and hands and feet and stuff. But actually, the eyes are made up of parts, and the hands are made up of parts, and the feet are made up of parts. So, um, and then we quickly see that as we keep, do we say, dissecting deconstructing this body into parts, it gets smaller and smaller, but there's no end to dividing. If we get down to atoms, even then there's there's no such thing as a as an indivisible atom. It's um very quickly uh I find when I like follow this kind of line of reasoning like this, the mind, as soon as it slips from the okay, it's not a single entity into like, well then there's multiplicity and see that the multiplicity all starts to shimmer and dissolve because all of it is just more divisible stuff. Something, I feel of a kind of um yeah, very quickly the mind starts to almost dissolve too. Yeah, I can't get a hold of anything and all these parts are infinitely um divisible ad nauseam which means like infinitely uh divisible but ad nauseam is kind of a nice phrase because it's a little bit nauseating to um to uh, let the mind kind of dissolve into this like unfindability of any part of course when we put the conglomerations together we can call them hands and feet and eyes and nose and bodies but we see that's just a kind of uh, a kind of mental projection making these conglomerates out of um kind of almost like nothing because each piece of conglomerate is infinitely um Dividable, And we don't find anything at the bottom. In early Buddhism, they, they tried to find these kind of like tiny partless particles like atoms that would make up everything. But uh, when I started looking at that more, they said, no, everything is, nothing is indivisible, actually. You can't get down to an indivisible particle. There's not, it keeps dividing until like you can't find anything. And uh so if we if we kind of follow that and we spend some time with it, um we start to feel I think I start to feel a little differently about this body. Of course it's still functioning, of course it's still appearing, it's doing all its stuff, but um it's a little bit less graspable, it's a little bit more um I don't know, flimsy than it seemed. A sick body where we're really um we're really uh feeling as if it's so solid. Pain feels very solid and real, but every every experience is uh we can start looking at in this new way and come to, to uh not really be able to find anything. And yet it still keeps appearing. That's where they use this in the says things like like. The body and mind are like a dream. Because dream appears, but it's not like really the things in a dream appear. But they're not really solid and substantial and existent in the way that we feel them to be. So uh, I think this is a way to relieve sickness. In the, um, Commentary on this, on this Book of Serenity, Zen koan story. Uh, there's another story, as you can see, Zen is just lots and lots of stories. And um, this story is about a um, a Taoist priest in those old days in China, maybe earlier. It's a story about even earlier times in China when maybe Buddhism was was first um taking root in China, the strange Indian tradition that made its way into a Taoist country. And the Taoists were and still are into various things. Taoism is a beautiful tradition and it kind of blended with Buddhism in many ways in China. But one thing the Taoists were into was immortality. They were like... Here it's translated as Taoist wizards. They were looking for, um, elixirs of immortality and, you know, a lot of magic and alchemy in ancient uh, Taoism. So, um, that's part of the context for the story. A Taoist priest asked that Indian teacher Bodhi Ruchi, I think maybe around Tan Bodhi Dharma earlier, in The Taoist priest said, in Buddhist teachings, is there a method for immortality that surpasses the methods of the Chinese Taoist wizards? And Bodhi Ruchi said, how can this country have a method for immortality? Even if you could extend your years, once your karmic retribution is used up, then you fall into another realm. That's the, the Buddhist responses. Um, we have this like dependent arising, birth and death, cyclical, um, experiences based on karma. So it's a little different. Sorry, we don't have, doesn't sound like we have this, these, um, Taoist immortality wizards like you have. But then he goes on to say, um, and then he pulls out a, a sutra from his robe and um, gives it to the Taoist wizard, and uh, it's the sutra of the Buddha of Infinite Life, Amitayus Buddha, the Buddha of Infinite Life, and uh, and gives it, he gives it to this Taoist priest and said, "This is the method of the Great Wizard, Shakyamuni Buddha." to realize eternal liberation and forever leave birth and death. So, it's kind of a Buddhist version of immortality called nirvana. But Not exactly the same way as the Taoists thought of immortality. They thought you, you live in the same body, um, getting very, very, very old, like so old that you never die. The Buddha has kind of a different immortality, which is realizing that there is no birth and death. And one way to realize that is just like the way we just described. Is birth a singular existing entity or is birth made up of parts? Is death a a singular entity or is it made up of parts? And if it's neither one of these two things, then it doesn't really exist the way we think it does. Also, in this case, it's a um, Amityas Buddha, the Buddha of Infinite Life, is, the, is another name also for Amitabha. This is the pure Land school of Buddhism where it's, a, it's just another version of, we could say, immortality or freedom from birth and death uh, through devotion to Buddha. In fact, Dao Wu, in the year 835, no, Dao Wu is the one who said being sick and not sick have nothing to do with him. In 1835, Dao Wu became sick. And just before he died that year, he said to the assembly, now I'm going west. West, the western pure land is the realm of Amitabha and Amitaius with infinite life. As soon as he said, I'm going west, he died. So maybe Dao Wu is, um, is in our presence right now. Not in his bodily form, not in some um uh, some magical wizardly produced um, spirit, but just uh, our own ordinary awareness right now it doesn't actually seem to change it doesn't seem to actually ar- arise and cease and Can't really find a difference between mine and yours, so maybe Dao Wu's is here too. So, um, that's a story about um, some possible, uh, practices for those interested in addressing worry about sickness, aging, and death. And in the midst of all that, if it seems like um, that seems all kind of complicated or abstract or something, uh, it's all um, available to um, look into if we want. Uh, and there's infinite other ways to to look into this. And uh, if if we come across the appearance of of sickness, we also um, with our Bodhisattva vow, we naturally um, respond. Don't need to worry. But we can meet uh, it in the moment. I might even say we don't even really need to plan how to meet it when it comes in the form of this body or another body, we need it. This doesn't mean that we don't, um, for example, wear a mask. That's not exactly planning for non-sickness or sickness. That's just um, another compassionate response to, um, to an arising situation. So, uh, I think we'll close the talk and then we can, if people wanted to hang around and talk some more, uh, I'd be happy to. In the meantime, um, please, please take care uh, with great love and affection for each other and, uh, and yourself. And, and the Dharma and, um, in this world of, um, per all pervading sickness, yeah, may we all find ease and joy. Dedicate the merit of our gathering this evening to everyone, everywhere, but especially all those who are um, sick and especially uh, all those suffering with coronavirus at this time. May they find some ease and um, relief in this present being. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow yeah. to end them. Mm-hmm. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow, mm-hmm. 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 I vow That's- to enter them. In those unsurpassable. I vow to